guys, I got my time mixed up. I thought it was uh, another time. But there we are. Let's start our webinar. Welcome to the PID webinar. Um, I'm Nadeem Al-Haq. We start the webinar now. Uh, today, we've got a very interesting topic. And this is a webinar joint with the World Bank, which I'm very happy that we're collaborating with the World Bank. We like collaboration. We like collaborating with everybody. Uh, so this is wonderful. So let's do uh, a webinar on Pakistan's tariff bias, anti-export or anti-consumer. I think it's a very important topic because exports, as you know, has been a preoccupation of Pakistan from day one. We've always wanted to export more, but we've never succeeded. Our export GDP ratio has not quite grown. We've always been stuck at about close to, um, I think, uh, something, 20% uh, or roughly. Um, less than that in terms of export, no, closer to 10% in terms of export GDP ratio. And uh, despite our efforts, all our efforts, despite having a huge um, uh, setup for increasing exports, something like 100, 150 commercial officers in every embassy, and trade um, development authority, and the whole Ministry of Commerce doing nothing else but pushing exports and giving subsidies, our exports still remain stuck. They don't grow much. So we are very happy to see that the World Bank has done some work on this. And so let's see what uh, they say. We've got a great panel. We've got uh, Dr. Gonzalo um, Barella from the World Bank. He's a senior economist of the World Bank in the Pakistan office. He's in Pakistan and has been doing a lot of good work on exports, writing about it in the newspapers, et cetera. So it's, uh, it's a happy Occasion that he's here to help us think this through. And we've got Ahmed uh, Fassi, um, a trade office, uh, um, um, trade policy advisor in Korea. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll find out what that is. I'm afraid I don't know who that is, but nevertheless. And we've got Dr. Asad Malik, Chief um, Executive Officer of Pakistan Business Council. Dr. Safta Sahil, now Executive Director um, of uh, the Capacity of Social Protection Resource Center in Islamabad, but formerly of the Commerce Ministry, Commerce Commerce well. So let's begin. Dr. Gonzalo, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Nadim. And I, I also really value this collaboration uh, with Pyle. Uh, but without further ado, let's let's start with the with the topic that brings us today: the, the anti-export bias of import duties, anti-export or anti-consumer. And I will argue that it's mostly an anti-export bias uh, that we have imposed by the import duty structure that Pakistan has. So that this problem of low export growth in Pakistan is related to it's self-inflicted. It's related to its tariff structure. So I will have a, a presentation uh, that I would like to share with you. So give me a second that I share screen. <clears throat> Great. Okay, so I'll, I'll start then. And just in case people get bored and want to disconnect earlier, I will start with my main message uh, right away. And my main message is that import duties are 
export taxes in disguise. So really, in theory, they are levied on imports. In theory, in practice, they are levied on, on imports, but they have an unintended consequence that is curbing exports, that is discouraging exports. And let me tell you how I, I'm, I'm planning to, to structure this presentation. I'm going to first talk a little bit about uh, how import duties are structured in Pakistan and elsewhere. And then I will argue why the structure of import duties in Pakistan is a problem. And that will bring me to the anti-export bias story. And then I will say a few things about what can be done about it. So let's start with, with a bit of background import duties. First thing that needs to be uh, considered is that import duties account for a sizable share of tax revenues in Pakistan. So if one thinks about the, the structure of tax collection across countries, there is one regularity that holds pretty, pretty well, pretty tightly. That is, as countries grow rich, they collect less taxes at import stage, and they collect more taxes in the form of excise, in the form of income tax, et cetera, et cetera. So what you have there in the slide is basically uh, a scatter plot in which you have all countries for which we have data and the share of taxes they collect from trade taxes, so basically tariffs and other related uh, import duties. Uh, and you have on the horizontal, basically the level of development to the country low of GDP per capita. And what you can see is this negative relation as countries grow, they collect less uh, taxes on trade. And what you also see is that Pakistan is a little bit above what we would expect given its level of development in terms of how much they collect uh, from trade taxes. Basically, they collect about 16% of all taxes come from uh, import duties. That is customs duties, regulatory duties, and additional customs duties. On top of that, there is the sales tax, but the sales tax falls both on, on, on imported and domestic goods. So uh, take that out, you end up with about 16% of taxes come uh, from uh, import taxes. Now, the other thing that is important to say is that comparatively, these import duty rates are high in Pakistan. And there, there, are several, there are several stories about this. And sometimes one sees different comparisons in which Pakistan doesn't do so badly. But actually, one needs to take into consideration that Pakistan not only has tariffs, but it also has regulatory duties and additional customers. Tariffs are about, on average, 12%. Regulatory and additional customs duties are an extra 8%. So all in all, on average, we have import duties of 20% that comes, that brings Pakistan to on the top of the list of countries in terms of the protection they grant through uh, import. And the other feature that is quite uh, marked in Pakistan is the fact that there is cascading in import duties. So cascading means what? Cascading means that import duties are higher for consumer goods and lower for intermediates and raw materials. And this story sounds reasonable, but I will argue that actually this cascading is at the heart of the anti-export bias story. So the intention of the cascading is 
to promote industrialization in the country. So you allow firms to import the intermediates and raw materials uh, at relatively low rates, but you protect them on the final good. You give them high protection, the final good. Basically what that ends up doing is giving extremely high effective protection to Pakistani producers. Uh, to calculate effective rates of protection, what we look at is that how much a sector adds in terms of value. And so how much value added there is as a share of their output and how much they pay in terms of duties for intermediates, raw materials, but also how much, by how much they are protected on their final good. And once you put these three pieces of information together, value added over output, taxes on raw materials and intermediates and tariffs on final good, what you see is extremely high rates of effective protection for many of the manufacturing sectors in, in Pakistan, in many cases, well above 100%. So this effective protection is basically doing what? It is inducing firms in Pakistan to sell in the domestic market where they are facing uh, this effective protection. And with this, I will go to the second point of the presentation, that is, why is this a problem? And this the heart of the anti-export uh, bias story. And so what import duties do is they basically tilt incentives towards domestic market orientation because they reduce the profits of exporting relative to the profits of selling domestically. And this happens in Pakistan, it happens everywhere. I mean, this story of the anti-export bias of, of tariffs is something that was brought up in 1920 by, by an economist called our learner. So it's not something I'm, I'm bringing up, right? It, it is a... It's a long-standing uh, idea, but there are two ways you can you can think about uh, tariffs and, and export competitiveness, right? Or two channels. One channel is the channel that operates through imported inputs, and one of the things that we see is again in a in a cross-country uh, type of of setting is if you if you put all all countries together in terms of their export growth and their uh, input tariff incidence, so how, how much they charge uh, of tariffs on intermediate inputs, what you see is the more they charge on tariffs on intermediate inputs, then the less they uh, grow their exports. And basically this happens because intermediate inputs are crucial to uh, increase your competitiveness. You, you need to have access to a wide set of intermediates to be able to produce something competitively and sell it internationally in a, in a competitive way. I mean, the typical example for Pakistan is what is happening with, for example, synthetic fibers. So if apparel producers have access to the widest range of textile fibers, then they're going to be more competitive in international markets. If they don't, because there are high import duties on these intermediates, then they're going to be restricted in what they can do and they're going to be restricted in how much they can sophisticate their export offer. So I did some work on, on, on this issue of tariffs on intermediate inputs and competitiveness. And the key channel through which this, uh, these two things are related is the channel of productivity. So basically what we saw when we analyzed what happens when, when tariffs on intermediate inputs or what we call upstream tariffs uh, increase, what we see is the productivity of firms decreases, right? And 
The, the interesting thing is that, and, and that's why you see basically in this chart in which you see the effects, whether they are positive or negative or around zero. So if they are, if the effect is touching that red line there, it means the effects are around zero. And if the effects are, if the bars are below the red line, it means that the effects are detrimental. So that the increases in tariffs reduce productivity. And what we see is something quite interesting. That is domestic firms. So firms that are focused in the domestic market suffer from high import uh, duties. Now, if you focus on exporters, the large exporters don't suffer so much from input, in, from import duties on intermediates because they have access to refund schemes uh, that FBR will, will pay. Now, we all know that these refund schemes that FBR is supposed to, to, to have in place are, are schemes that have problems. So the, the, the refunds for exporters on their intermediate input duties they, they pay uh, are complex. They take a lot of time to be actually refunded. And so what we see is that for small exporters, the negative productivity effect is still there, meaning these small exporters really struggle with the FPR system to refund their duties paid on intermediates. The larger firms uh, handle it better, right? So the key takeaway of this is you need to improve the duty refund scheme, yes, but this is not going to be a substitute for an across the board tariff reduction if you want to help firms become more competitive by reducing their costs through lower tariffs on intermediates. And another piece of, of, of work we did on this, on this topic was we looked at what happens when you eliminate this, these duties. And the, the China-Pakistan free trade agreement provides us a good, a good example. And I started working on this a couple of years ago when there was a lot of debate about the usefulness of this free trade agreement. And uh, there, there was a lot, of, uh, a lot of debate in the press about how uh, the, the bilateral trade deficit between China and Pakistan was evidence of the, the agreement not being good for Pakistan. Now, what you see uh, when you start looking at the data a little bit more, more uh, carefully is that what happened with this agreement was that there was an increase in import penetration for some key inputs from China because they, the tariffs were lower. And so there were firms were buying more inputs from China. And those sectors in which there was an increase in import penetration of inputs from China were sectors that actually did better in terms of export competitiveness, not necessarily with China, but with third markets. So a typical example is compressors for refrigerators. So there was an increase in imports of compressors from refrigerators from China, and there was an increase of exports of refrigerators to Afghanistan. So these refrigerators they fabricated and they made in Pakistan were not sold back to China. They were sold somewhere else. But that's still an increase in export competitiveness associated with an increased access to intermediates coming from the rest of the world. Now, this is a story that is a little bit, uh, I would say, less controversial. So I think if, if you talk to firms out there, they would say reducing tariffs on intermediate inputs on raw materials and on capital equipment is a good thing, right? Nobody would argue against that. 
I would, I would assume. Now, there is a second part of the anti-export bias story that has to do with what is happening with the tariffs on final goods. And my point is, tariffs on final goods also need to fall if you want to reduce the anti-export bias of tariff policy. And we see the evidence across countries. So again, here you have a scatter plot. In the horizontal axis, you have uh, the, the output tariff levels across countries. On the vertical, you have the growth in exports. And again, you see a negative relation. But the argument is, is relatively straightforward. And I'm going to give you an example. That is the example of a bicycle. So instead of looking across you know, a scatter plot with many points that perhaps you know, hide many things, well, let's think more practically. So take a normal bicycle. And let's say that the international price for the bicycle is $100. And in Pakistan, the import duties on bicycles are 52%. So that means that the price at which a domestic Pakistani firm can sell this bicycle here in Pakistan to Pakistan's consumer is $152 without being outpriced by international competition, right? Because the international competitor will produce at $100, but will have to face the import duties of 52. So, the Pakistani producer can sell in Pakistan a bicycle for up to $152. But if this same Pakistani producer wanted to export the bike, he would only get $100. So the 52% import duty is basically pushing this producer in Pakistan to sell this bike in Pakistan rather than go through the hassle of exporting that is complicated on its own right and getting $100. So this is, I would say, the, 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 the main, uh, you know, conceptually, the main point of the argument. And it goes back to this chart that I was presenting below, before. That is, if you have very or relatively low tariffs on intermediates and raw materials, but higher on consumer goods, you're inducing your firms to sell domestically because domestically they are protected, right? And even in South Asia on average, if you take South Asia average without Pakistan, that South Asia is a highly protected region, you see that they do have higher tariffs on consumer goods, but the gap is not that large. So the large gap that you see in Pakistan implies large effective protection, implies a large incentive for firms not to export, but to sell domestically. Now, a good example of, of reform is uh, the example of Vietnam. So in the case of Vietnam, what happened was that there was a sharp trade liberalization in 2008. And at the same time, you have and, and the, the typical fear with a large trade liberalization is, well, what is going to happen with imports and what is going to happen with the current account deficit? And what ended up happening was that actually Vietnam integrated dramatically into uh, the global marketplace and its global market share increased from about 0.3% in 2005, the global market share, the export market share, from about 0.3% in 2005 to about 1.1 in uh, 2008. 
2019. So in 2019, Vietnam exports about $1.1 out of $100 the world export. Whereas at the same time, Pakistan's global market shares declined. And basically, you don't see large current account imbalances. You see the opposite. You see actually imports grew, but also exports grew. So you see balances overall. Pakistan, on the other hand, export orientation over time has actually declined. Nadim was mentioning this at the beginning. In 2000, it was 15%. Today, it's 10%. So the country is more inward looking. And no surprise is more inward looking because tariffs are extremely high. And high tariffs have encouraged firms to sell domestically. And these high tariffs haven't actually curbed imports at all. Because if you see Pakistan for the last 20 years, for about 16 out of the 20 last years, run current account deficits. So the, 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 if the objective of the import duty was to curb imports, they didn't deliver on that, on that objective. Why? Because you have, yes, the, the tariff on the final good high, but the tariff on the intermediate raw is much lower. So firms have incentives to import the intermediates and sell domestically. So they get the imports, but they don't deliver on the exports. So, let me go into what to do about it. And before I, I get into what to do about it, let's see a little bit on, on what is it that they have been doing. Uh, and so for this, I will compare what happened. So the last Finance Act uh, in Pakistan brought some tariff changes. So what you have here is the before and after the last Finance Act. So the initial in fiscal year 20, the final in fiscal year 21, and you have the changes. And the first, I, I would like to focus on the first four lines there. There is the customs duty, CDE, the regulatory duty, RD, additional customs duty, and the total. And if you just look at the total, 21.67% moved to 20.99%. Very, very timid change. Not much change in terms of tariff reduction. But the, the, the particularly problematic thing is if you actually go and look by type of product instead of looking at the average. And so if you look at by type of product, what you see is that the large changes actually happened in industrial supplies and in capital goods. So again, in principle, one says, okay, that reduces costs for firms, true, but it also increases the anti-export bias of tariff policy. So no change in tariffs on food and beverages and very timid changes on consumer goods that have extremely high tariffs of 34.7% uh, on average. So the tariff rationalization initiative is on the one hand, uh, something commendable, they are trying to reduce tariffs, but on the other hand, they are forgetting about reducing the tariff on the final good and therefore forgetting about this anti-export bias problem that is out there. So let me share uh, some ideas on what I think should be done. And the first thing is introduce simplicity, transparency, and predictability in tariff policy making. And in particular, I would say here, stay away from approaches that are extremely sector specific. So if you go for sector specific approaches, you bias anything that is new. So if there is any effort to diversify, 
that effort is not going to be priced. Instead, it's going to be penalized. Why? Because any sector-specific approach is going to focus on the sectors that have bargaining power to go and negotiate for tariff reductions in their intermediates uh, and raw materials. Also, because firms need transparency and they need predictability, so they can't change their business plan every uh, on every finance act. They need to have a plan for the next five years, know what is going to happen with tariffs so they can adjust. Second is, yes, reduce import tariffs on inputs, but gradually also reduce the tariffs on final goods too. That will reduce the anti-export bias. And by the way, that will also help to attract the right type of FDI, right? So the, the Vietnam story is not only a story of tariffs, right? So I'm, I'm not obsessed with tariffs. So I understand the Vietnam success story is also a story of many other things that happen. But one of those things is FDI. The thing is, if you have high tariffs, you're going to attract the FDI that wants markets in the country, not the FDI that wants efficiency seeking type of platforms. So you're not going to attract the firms that want to come to Pakistan to set an export base here because the tariffs give them such high profits by selling domestically that you will get those that want to exploit the domestic market. Third, simplify the process for accessing duty exemption schemes for exporting firms. This system is complicated. Everybody, uh, I would say everybody agrees on that, but there is evidence showing that it's particularly complicated for small firms that cannot avail to the administrative costs are uh, so low. And fourth, introduce evidence-based and performance-linked support to new exporters. So stay away from sector-specific subsidy schemes but mainly stay away from any subsidy scheme that uses public funds, taxpayers' money, that is not subject to an impact evaluation, that we don't know if it works or doesn't work to deliver on its objectives. So take stock of the incentive schemes you have, start monitoring evaluating or doing impact evaluations and focus on those that work and face out uh, those that uh, don't. I don't know how I'm doing on time, but if I have five more minutes, I wanted to touch upon uh, Nadim's point from uh, our previous interaction. And, and this story of whether tariffs are introduced an anti-export bias and an anti-consumer bias was uh, something that Nadim prompted saying, actually they introduce an anti-consumer bias. And I want to say, yes, you're right, but they introduce both things. Right? So it's not that they introduce one and not the other, they introduce both things. And I wanted to share some preliminary evidence that we have when we looked at what, is, uh, what are tariffs doing to consumption, to the consumer bundle, and particularly what it's doing to the poor. So they do introduce an anti-consumer bias. And I just wanted to, again, share this, this slide in which we have on food and beverages, no change. So if you think, and on consumer goods, very little change. So if you really want to think about consumers, consumers are paying much higher prices than they should be by virtue of import duties that are on the verge of 30 to 35%. Now, the problem also is that these import duties are actually anti-poor. So they are a very regressive tax. And what this chart shows is basically the distributional impact of in import duties. So as a share of total expenditure, 
by the level of income of the household, right? How much you pay in import duties. And what you see is that you, the, the poorest households, so those that are in the first deciles, pay much more in import duties than the richer deciles. And this is by virtue of the fact that the poor consume more in terms of goods and less in terms of services, right? That don't have, don't have tariffs applied. Uh, and this is regardless of how you measure uh, the tariffs, if the statutory or the effective, uh, the message is still the same. So the poor face almost, so those in the poorest side of the distribution of income face almost double the burden of import duties than the richest, the ones in the richest decade. So they, these tariffs don't only introduce an anti-export bias, they are also anti-poor. So I will finish with this. Import duties in Pakistan haven't delivered on their objective. One can think of three objectives. To collect revenues, largely they, they, they promote smuggling. Perhaps collecting revenues is the only one in which they sort of deliver. To curb imports, they haven't delivered on curbing imports because they stimulate firms to get intermediate inputs and raw materials from abroad at relatively low tariffs because they have the protection domestically and these firms on export. And to protect domestic consumers, the other objective also hasn't, del hasn't delivered on that because they keep firms away from export markets that are key platforms for growth. So why? Because they are a tax, implicit and powerful tax uh, on exports. And because in this day and age, we live in a world of global value chains. Firms integrate with global markets through international production networks. And what tariffs do is they introduce a lot of sand in the wheel of this uh, international production networks. And so they discourage productivity, knowledge transfers, reducing scope for sophisticated uh, Pakistan's exports. And they are a burden for the poor more than they are a burden to the rich. So they are a regressive tax contribute to high food prices. So if we want to boost export competitiveness and we want to support domestic firms, perhaps we need to start thinking about a different way of doing it than using I'll stop here. Thank you. Thank you, Gonzalo. Thank you. This is music to my ears. I appreciate that. I must say that I, this has been a long, long debate in Pakistan. I should mention a few names here. Our own uh, A.R. Kamal in PAB made many arguments such as this in papers. Ijaz Ghani did that. Zafar Mahmood did that. Manzoor Saab now in uh, Islamabad, a senior fellow at PAB, he's been making such arguments for a long time. Unfortunately, the government is not receptive to these arguments. So perhaps your coming on board might make them more receptive. But I think two things that you might also need to apply further here, which increases both the anti-export bias as well as the anti-poor biases, are desire to keep the exchange rate appreciated, which also acts like a tariff. So I think we've done a paper in PID recently on a five currency crisis where a exchange rate perpetually um, appreciates, and then we go in for a currency crisis, and then, uh, you know, so this adjustment, this uncertainty of the exchange rate and the bias towards overvaluation also acts like a tariff, and it also acts disproportionately on, on, on industry as well as the poor. And the second thing is a creeping capital controls. I'm a child of capital controls, and I remember that we never saw a dollar bill and that when I left the country to study, I had a five pound note. 
under my socks because you had to be searched at the airport and how when money had to be sent to me by, by my parents had to come through the informal channel how I used to read comic books because they were banned in the country. So I had to get them through the informal channel. So, you know, yeah, it, 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 it does bias against poor kids like myself to who wanted to read comic books. So it's a very valuable chain. However, I shall not go on with my stories. I shall talk, I shall bring in, uh, we'll, we'll discuss this later, but let me bring in Mr. Ahmed Fassi from DIA. Mr. Fassi, over to you. Let's see how you react to Gonzalo's presentation. Thank you very much, Dr. Nadeem. Um, uh, first of all, let me uh, explain this. It's DAI. Uh, we are implementing partners of uh, USAID's project, which is Pakistan Regional Economic Integration Activity. And uh, I have been seconded there by Ministry of Commerce uh, before joining this project two years ago. I had served in Ministry of Commerce uh, in the... Development Alternatives Incorporated. It's a US-based firm. So um, before joining here, I had served in the foreign trade wing of Ministry of Commerce and basically that basically dealt with European Union and uh, made efforts to secure better market access for Pakistan there. Uh, I'm glad to see that uh, Mr. Hassan Malik is also there uh, uh, from Pakistan Business Council. Uh, Ministry of Commerce official is contracted to a U.S. contractor. <laughs> no, no. Uh, Ministry of Commerce had sent me on secondment. It's, it's. Uh, you know, they just want me to connect their project with a trade. Am I audible to everybody? Very audible. Sorry, Right. So uh, basically, Gonzalo has uh, summed up the case very well. Uh, I would not like to go into reputation, but just a few points uh, that I've been uh, thinking about is that these high tariffs actually that Pakistan maintains uh, and very complicated you know, tariffs in the form of custom duties and then additional custom duties and regulatory duties over and above them uh, reflect lack of our confidence confidence to on uh, exporting sector to turn things around and uh, and it, i totally agree with gonzalo that this policy unfortunately has not delivered on its stated objectives uh, either and the sectors that we have sort of protected over the years with the hope that they will graduate one day and they will become more competitive uh, globally or regionally unfortunately uh, have not really uh, delivered on that. So as I see it, uh, there are three ways in which import tariffs have really uh, hurt our, uh, or impacted our export sector adversely. One is that uh, because of our reluctance to bring uh, tariffs down uh, and enter into freer trading arrangements with other countries and region because with the fear that we won't be able to protect our industry has increased our reliance on unilateral market access arrangements, which in the first place are very limited. And secondly, uh, you see, uh, it has also uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, ensured it has also kind of made an impact in a sense that our exports have remained uh, concentrated in very few sectors. I'll tell you how. 
you know, uh, Pakistan uh, has a duty-free access in European Union. Uh, and we got that in 2014. Before that, our exports to European Union were 23% of our total exports. Today, our, uh, our dependence on that market has increased many fold and our ex, you know, it's now about 34% of our exports are going to EU. And it will become clear to you why I'm trying to, what I'm trying to tell you when I give you an example of Bangladesh which had been a beneficiary of a unilateral access in European Union for a very long period of time. And as a result, what has happened is that European Union remains its major export destination. Its exports are not diversified in all uh, in other international markets. More than 60% of its exports go to European Union. More than 60% of its exports are also concentrated in textile and apparel sector only. And I see that with our increased reliance on this unilateral access, same thing could be happening to Pakistan and in the long run. And secondly, what's uh, what's wrong with these uh, schemes is that uh, you see, uh, without undertaking necessary reforms, uh, your exports remain vulnerable. These systems are vulnerable because those countries are bound to change these schemes over a period of time. The present GSP plus scheme will be revised in 2023 with United Kingdom not there in European Union, which had been the greatest support for Pakistan. I think we will find very few people uh, supporting, supporting the case for Pakistan to re retain market access in EU beyond 2023. Um, so so that's, that's really very important for, for us to consider. You see, now we see countries are uh, exhibiting confidence, uh, more and more confidence, the developing countries, and they're opening up to the rest of the world. I'll give you the example of Bangladesh, which has recently announced that it is it has it will renounce its least developed country status uh, to graduate into developing country. And what that means is that Bangladesh will no longer have unilateral market access, enhanced duty-free market access in a European Union and other developed countries. And it has announced that it is now ready to undertake more free trade agreements with other countries, which will entail reciprocal uh, concessions. While it will gain enhanced market access in those markets, it will also allow more imports uh, from those countries into Bangladesh. We are seeing that Cambodia is opening up now. I don't, you know, uh, Gonzalo has already talked about Vietnam. Vietnam has, you know, gone beyond us. What I'm seeing is that in coming years, uh, countries like Bangladesh and and Cambodia would be uh, outpacing us and, and uh, really increasing their exports exponentially unless we, we start to do something right. And I think uh, while we cannot really do away with tariffs completely, it's very important that we rationalize and simplify them. Uh, we make, you know, it doesn't really make any sense that the kind of tariff dispersions that we have within sectors. You know, when I was studying uh, import regime on textile uh, raw materials and input goods, there are 16 different combinations of custom duties, regulatory duties, and additional custom duties on that. 
why on earth would anyone come in Pakistan and enter into joint ventures with local Pakistani manufacturers or set up a plant in Pakistan when they cannot import raw materials or intermediary goods with ease from regional countries when they cannot when they do not have uh, market access for their final products in the region or beyond so i i really see that with uh, with this uh, policy of import substitution uh, i i would say that very carefully uh, uh, we cannot expect different results in 2020 than you know uh, what we had in in many many years ago so if you just see that uh, you know pakistan pakistan's exports uh, even in textile have remained predominantly uh, uh, cotton-based uh, exports. Uh, our textile exp apparel exports are predominantly uh, cotton-based. And this is the category which is sh shrinking globally. And, and uh, you know, our unfortunately uh, mix is the same today than uh, as it was 10 years ago and countries like vietnam and countries like cambodia are changing that mix very fast and the demand for that that product is also uh, textile apparels which are based on man-made fiber uh, and and staple fibers uh, is growing in international markets and we are not able to focus on that because we maintain very high import duties on on this raw material as well so um, uh, and then, you know, there is, I've also seen that, you know, these concessions, the, sorry, these protections in form of import duties are, there, there are no KPIs for that. You can never ask those sectors that, you know, uh, uh, what are we getting in return for that? Are you paying more wages to uh, workers, uh, you know, because we are protecting you? Are you, are you giving better conditions to, for workers? Are you doing something to improve, uh, you know, uh, about your emissions and everything? We have no way of knowing it. And we have no way of knowing how long we would continue to uh, stay disconnected for the benefit uh, from the world, for the benefit of the very uh, few. So um, I would uh, conclude here and uh, pass this over to our next uh, honorable participant. Thank you, so if there are any questions, please let me. Thank you, Fasisa. We'll bring you in with questions later. Of course, there will be questions. You always have the speakers first and questions later. Uh, there's a, uh, a very good um, analysis of how the system is working and how the international arena is changing. I was just looking at a paper from E.R. Kamal in 1987, calculating effective protection rates um, and making roughly similar points. So this debate is a long-standing debate, and somehow um, the debate has not really got going. I mean, it's always kind of we present, have one session, debate never really takes off. So it's good that we have an industry representative here from PBC, Mr. Hassan Malik. Mr. Hassan Malik is a well-known professional. He's been the CEO of Unilever and a very well-respected business professional. He's been running PBC for a while. Business. Yes, Malik, sir, over to you. OK, thank you very much. And you give me an opportunity to, to talk on this very important subject. <clears throat> I would actually first start by saying, what is it that Pakistan needs? Right? Um, I think foremost, 
if you think about it pakistan needs jobs employment right exports imports etc etc they may be a means uh, to to getting it or certainly exports can be means uh, of getting it but primarily you need first of all jobs that lead to disposable incomes which lead to consumption which then lead to production and 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 various other things yeah so you can't start with the with the end here and say miraculously we want consumption to take place but we are not bothered about jobs yeah now if you want to create jobs obviously ideally you should be creating it in export oriented uh, industries but equally for a country of 210 or 214 or 15 million people the domestic market is also very important so you need to be able to fulfill at least your basic uh, demand or demand for basic goods by producing them locally so let me take an example shoes 15 years ago there were hardly any imports of shoes into pakistan today there are hardly any local production of shoes is incidental you know you we make chappals basically or we make peshawari chappals or, or you, the, these uh, flip flops that you use in the bathroom essentially i'm slightly exaggerating to make the point but this is the sea change that has happened yeah now so the question is what is it that we need to achieve right in order to generate jobs and why is it that uh, industry Uh, uh you know seeks cascading tariffs and why is it that pakistan business council for example advocates uh cascading tariffs now i must say that before i come to that i have to agree that not only are tariffs high in pakistan tax rates are also very high in pakistan not only do the tariffs subject a certain uh, section of society to a to a high incidence of cost but when it comes to taxes it also subjects disproportionately uh, the few who pay taxes with a very heavy burden so uh, just a case in point manufacturing represents 20% of the gdp pays 56% of the total taxes yeah so this is the the extent of reliance on the few we have not been able to broaden our tax base and therefore we continue to rely on easy picks and imports are very easy to to tax because things are coming in into from from ports and you can you can you know uh, you know given 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 some sense of uh, honesty and propriety you can you can you can tax them as they come in so it's an easy way to do that uh, but i totally agree that the tariff rates are high and they need to come down and eventually the tariff rates on the finished goods or consumer goods as you call it or or ready to consume or ready to use goods should also come down but there is a journey and 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 there is a time and evolution that is required to do that why do i say that for about 10 years we did not have adequate energy so what happened to our industry are are the industry of pakistan basically deindustrialized and for for the size of our country and the evolution of our development we cannot afford to lose jobs in in manufacturing the growth of manufacturing and the growth of gdp for a country like pakistan is exceedingly closely correlated and i can share those uh, those those numbers later yeah um, so the country has been deindustrializing the country has been losing jobs so no wonder we don't actually have the disposable incomes in any case to 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 consume and the 
the and and if you do not uh, rectify and you do not encourage domestic uh, manufacturing you will find that and, and somehow miraculously you are able to to create the the means of consumption that consumption will come of imported products so our economy is heavily consumption oriented as much as 80% of our total gdp comes from consumption and there is a very high reliance on imports this is the reason why we also have recurring uh, external account crisis and you know for 22 uh, times we've been to the imf in fact we've been in an imf program for more years since independence that we've been out of it yeah so there are some fundamental reforms that that uh, that are required now let me come back to uh, to manufacturing manufacturing is a combination of materials some of them are imported some of them are local but there's a conversion cost involved energy plays a varying role depending on what we are talking about it can be you know as little as 5 to 10% it can be as much as 20 to 25% of the total cost mix on the domestic industry the the burden of energy cost is 25% higher than the global or the regional norms so if you look at uh, the the rate at which the cascading import tariffs have been uh, uh, you know uh, introduced in the last year you find and, and gozalo shared those figures there was a minimal impact in the overall reduction of of of, of import tariffs 0.8% to 1.11% but if energy cost alone represents 25% of your uh, of your your manufacturing cost and that is 25% higher that is actually more than the impact that uh, the the positive uh, benefit that may have been created as a result of the cascading tariffs so this is one of the main reasons why i believe that cascading tariffs have to be brought in they have to be targeted they can't be general they have to be targeted on raw materials that are not available in pakistan uh, uh, and they have to be of course also uh, on intermediate items that are again not being produced in pakistan eventually yes i agree that the import duties on finished goods must also come down so at the same time i i i i firmly believe that that you cannot have indefinite protection anybody any sector that believes that you know they should enjoy indefinite protection are living in a fool's world it will not happen and it it should stop happening if it it is happening and i also believe that there cannot be unconditional incentives given to any sector whether it is export or 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 import substitution so import substitution on a sustainable basis uh and on a on a competitive basis makes a huge amount of uh, uh, sense for a country where there are 2 million people becoming of employable age every year if you don't offer them meaningful employment they're going to be on your streets creating trouble for you there are 5 million unemployed and this is before covid and of course post covid we have significantly more uh, people who are unemployed so i i want to leave enough time for uh, question and answers i want to just stop there thank you thank you hasan sir thank you very much so there you have it government the manufacturing all for competing interests but we always tend to go but not the second the third or the fourth fifth best so there's a problem here we try and tackle it here then there's a problem here we tackle it here so we are in a mess and everybody knows that i was just looking at another paper by ijaz ghani and then by myself as well on effective protection rates this 
has been point has been made, but unfortunately, this point is never made at the policy table. This point is made at webinars like this, and the policy table is very, very far removed, as Fasisa will tell you. It's God knows where it is. It's somewhere on Mars. But nevertheless, we'll bring in Saftar Sohail, long-time Ministry of Commerce person. Saftar Saab, solve the problem for us. How do we deal with so many competing interests yeah. in the fifth Thank policy? you very much. Uh, good to be uh, with you and uh, uh, in this uh, webinar. <coughs> we, uh, Dr. Nadeemul Haq, uh, uh, tried to uh, kind of... Uh, solved the problem when he was uh, at the planning commission and actually the cabinet uh, uh, initiated a national tariff uh, reform exercise which he headed and uh, my office as dg trade policy was uh, the secretariat of that reform exercise uh, and uh, when uh, i was uh, asked to uh, prepare for this uh, webinar um, i uh, started not exactly from that, uh, uh, from the results of that reform exercise, which I would briefly share, uh, rather uh, from the first strategic trade policy framework 2009, where we very loudly uh, claimed that we would strengthen the linkages between trade and development. And one of uh, that uh, link was that we would make the trade work for the ordinary people, uh, which would then involve uh, the uh, to remove those market distortions which uh, have negative impact for the consumers. <clears throat> but right from the beginning, I, I would say that uh, uh, my uh, the previous speakers have highlighted the impact of anti-export bias and touched upon the implications of uh, this anti-export bias on the consumer welfare. <clears throat> which is fine, which is a well-researched uh, area. Uh, and uh, the fresh evidence has been presented today also, which is, which is excellent. But as Dr. Nadeem also said that we are, we are doing it for such a long time. Why don't we have results? So there I personally uh, would like to see the things from the other end. Uh, that is the uh, market the nature of market that that Pakistan has developed over time. Uh, we would definitely talk about the state market relationships because it is expected that if there are market distortions, let's say compromises of competition policies, then the state should intervene to rectify that. Now, in, in our case, uh, we have two uh, bodies which are supposed to take care of the consumer welfare laws created by the international trade, that is National Tariff Commission. And then we have Competition Commission of Pakistan. Uh, but uh, the consumer welfare laws does not only happen due to international trade, it happens in the domestic commerce also. And then the overlap or the back and forth between domestic commerce and international trade is also uh, a big time reality. There are very few sectors where you can very neatly separate the international uh, trade. Uh, so uh, traditionally, uh, this um, uh, turf battle that we uh, faced, Dr. Nadeem would remember, uh, in that tariff reform exercise, we uh, brought in uh, Gary Purcell, uh, 
who did an excellent report, uh, which um, did talk about the consumer welfare laws and reminded the National Tariff Commission that they should try to define what do they mean by not passing the excessive costs of protection to the consumers. Now, uh, has National Tariff Commission ever produced some quality knowledge on that, that what do they really mean by that excessive cost passed on as the protection policy, as they pass their verdict on, on the consumers? Now, apparently there has been a lot of debate on uh, removing the duality between the industrial use and commercial use. We, we all are aware of those debates and uh, Ministry of Commerce has been told so many times that look, uh, if the, uh, the tariff setting comes to the Ministry of Commerce, uh, then the things should improve because uh, the FBR and Ministry of Finance remain uh, more attached with the revenue generation. So that happened. Uh, in the uh, STPF 2012-15, uh, the cabinet approved the principles of tariff policy. And now we have an approved national tariff policy, <clears throat> which has one provision which talks about the uh, role of the national tariff policy in enhancing the consumer welfare. Now, uh, we understand that uh, 18 meetings, I, I, I got myself informed today from the Ministry of Commerce of the subcommittees have taken place uh, from the budget of 2020-21. Uh, uh, there have been significant reductions. Uh, now, five months, can we have some evidence? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, to, uh, uh, to me, it, it it's a bit problematic to bring the evidence from the consumption levels of the uh, of the effect of reducing the uh, tariffs. Uh, now, another aspect which uh, I would like to share is that the because I'm looking the whole problem from the economic governance angle. Uh, my last assignment before I retired was as special secretary cabinet, and cabinet division has a lot of regulatory authorities and. I uh, was uh, directly involved with them. And what happens in those regulatory authorities uh, is interesting to share in the sense that uh, we know of the uh, compromises and welfare laws in the telecom sector, for example, or in the oil sector or in the power sector. Now, these uh, regulatory authorities say loudly and proudly in their annual reports that one of their function is to enhance the consumer welfare and to promote competition. But their annual reports, uh, helped by the auditors, external auditors, seldom talk about the actions that they had taken. We do not have any consolidated publication in Pakistan, which brings this subject uh, into a major contestation that what is happening to the consumer welfare, what are the historical trends uh, at the sectoral level? And if uh, the Auditor General's office tries to suggest to a regulatory authority uh, that some of your decisions have caused this much loss, which is then passed on to the consumers, they say that you cannot touch us because our decisions have a statutory function. And then what finally happens is that the decisions uh, have to go to the courts and the uh, 
the behavior of the judicialization of the regulations in Pakistan in terms of competition, application of competition laws has unfortunately been, uh, what uh, word should I use, disappointing. Uh, the uh, in the in the wake of or using the excuse of uh, 18th amendment our courts literally uh, made competition commission irrelevant uh, they took good eight nine years in announcing this decision about the jurisdiction of uh, competition commission after 18th amendment still there are some issues that that announcement was uh, that uh, verdict was announced last month uh, now our our market our uh, businesses they uh, they do take cover of the courts let's say uh, to uh, to uh, to avoid one can say uh, the jurisdictions uh, but coming to the international trade again <clears throat> i uh, we have been working closely with the competition commission dr nadim would remember that we in in his tariff reform exercise we made a subcommittee which was to be headed by the Competition Commission of Pakistan to address this issue uh, in a focused way, but uh, Competition Commission never came. They never used their convening power to uh, hold the meetings of that uh, committee and uh, we, we went nowhere. FBR also, by the way, did not cooperate uh, with us. Now, uh, in, in this uh, context, the Competition Commission says that, uh, look, uh, in many, many countries, the uh, Offenses related to competition commission are criminal offenses and the individual consumer can go to the court, whereas in case of Pakistan, this is an administrative offense. Now, th this is uh, an issue which needs a very good debate in Pakistan that why is it so and how far we have to go before we see uh, the consumer loss being addressed properly. Uh, if you ask National Tariff Commission, uh, they say that, look, we, um, we don't have Suomoto powers, uh, nobody comes to us, but we do conduct our um, hearings in open and people can come if they want. But if you look at the uh, decisions of National Tariff Commission, you would not find uh, consumer potential possible consumer welfare loss as a major consideration for them. Uh, now, the way this uh, webinar also has been designed is uh, the consumer welfare loss appears as a rider, you know, it appears as an additional consideration when, uh, let's say, World Bank or USAID is asking the government to liberalize the tariff uh, more. Uh, my concern uh, today uh, is linked more on the other side, uh, the question that why has it not happened? Uh, we uh, accept and respect the academic evidence which tells us that higher tariffs uh, result in, in different kind of losses, including welfare loss, but the system is not uh, moving. So there, uh, I would like to draw the attention of, uh, of the audience to the political economy aspect of this state market relationship where over a period of time, over the decades, we have a particular version of market in Pakistan and we need to understand the, uh, 
the sociological side if you can uh, if you can allow me to use that expression i use the framework normally to analyze such uh, situation used by the flickstein who says that in uh, state market relationships there are strategic action fields direct strategic action fields and indirect strategic action fields and when uh, there is enough uh strength uh, in an issue then the stability and continuity uh, can change and a new problem could be contested and then the reorganization of the strategic action fields impacts on the final outcome now uh, our media uh, our academia the donors have not been able to make the consumer welfare loss into a contestation it is noted it is talked about there are some papers there are some uh, some noise but that is all we uh, in ministry of commerce we have been trying to reduce the uh, the protections of the auto sector and i i can go into uh, graphic details of the way these strategic action fields operate uh including the uh, the forum hopping of decision making also uh so we need to understand the the dynamic of stability and change in terms of the contestation that we are talking about today uh if we understand that better then i think we can uh, move forward identifying the worst forms of consumer welfare loss uh, and then uh, involve the relevant authorities uh, personally there is a major problem and i would end uh, here that where should be the competition commission standing in all this what should be the relationship between national tariff commission and competition commission and if this is an issue which is linked with international trade and domestic commerce one of the major reason of having domestic commerce of commerce was that ministry of commerce should be responsible for the issues in domestic commerce also but competition commission continues to be attached with the finance division and then finance division has those other imperatives linked with the uh, with the revenue mobilization so perhaps one good um, uh, uh, review which we need to do is to separate the treasury from the economic policy making and instead of using the terminology of economic ministries uh, we should talk about the trade and exchange which would involve international trade and domestic commerce both in so many countries competition commissions are attached or they are autonomous but nominally they do not belong to the ministry of finance because that creates their own problems we have this spate of reports so ata uh, commission report and sugar commission report and oil and all that we know what kind of state the state market relationship in pakistan today stand so in that uh, context we perhaps need to look at the governance and then prepare our civil servants who are one of the actors along with the media along with other strategic action fields to understand what is happening and then to help this contestation produce results uh, with the help of uh, uh, academia uh, i'm not sure about the donors uh, Uh, here we have talked about um, uh, fdi uh, i don't want to go into the details that how 
FDI, uh, the kind of uh, bilateral investment agreements we have, the kind of protections that FDI has been asking and we have been given, and the kind of distortion that has also uh, created. So we need to review the governance structure of uh, this particular market-state relationship aspect from the consumer side. But who is going to represent the consumer? That is the major question. Uh, the, the whole conversation is lost into cascading and intermediate. Gary Purcell also said uh, in, in his report that uh, how, to, uh, how should one discover the consumer welfare loss in case of final products, intermediate products, and, and, and uh, raw materials. So there is a need to produce that kind of a knowledge where we can enable those strategic action fields who stand up for the consumers and then take the contestation to the logical conclusion in, in terms of positive uh, outcomes for the consumer. I wish um, uh, the National Tariff Commission and Ministry of Commerce uh, good luck. Uh, but to me, many times it appears that it was more of a, a battle of turf. Now they have the last say in setting the tariff, but would they really make a difference in terms of the long-term strategic objectives, one of which, uh, of tariff objective, uh, one of which is the consumer welfare? Thank you. Your mic is mute. Dr. Deem, your mic is mute. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Safdar Sab. I'm glad you reminded me of the Gary Purcell episode. I had completely forgotten about it. Uh, yes, we have gone through a number of hoops, but somehow the debate doesn't get going. Um, uh, Gonzalo, uh, the, you also saw from what Safdar said, how difficult it is to coordinate in the government. Just the Competition Commission, Tariff Commission, Ministry of Finance, Ministry of Commerce, they can't sit together and they can't talk. And that's the biggest problem of all. You convene meetings and nobody turns up. This is unless the Prime Minister calls the meeting, nothing happens. When you go to the Prime Minister, he's got 15 minutes. So I'm sorry, there's very little process in the government to make things happen. And uh, yes, of course, you're right. The large industrialists have the seat at the table. They are the only guys at the table uh, and the civil servants. The rest of us are not at the table. So. There's very little you can do there. But nevertheless, the problem remains. I would also like to point out that dynamics is very important, as Hassan uh, Malik pointed out. There is a kind of a um, monkey with a coconut um, thing that the monkey can't leave the coconut. Uh, there is this thing that the industry feels that, that I've got this goodie, I can't give it up. And the government doesn't have the guts to take that goodie away. So therefore, we are caught with this car subsidy that's been, or the vegetable oil subsidy that's been lasting for the last, or the protection that's been lasting for the last 70 years and doesn't seem to move. The second thing is non-tariff barriers are also very important. Just like now, when I was in the planning commission, we moved the car, secondhand car, from three to five years. And within six months, they came back and it came to three. Now it's down to almost nothing because there's so many barriers set up to second-hand cars. The prices have gone up dramatically. So, you know, the protection has gone up dramatically. Now, these non-tariff barriers are also very important in getting the protection story right. But I will not try and dilate on this. Let's talk about that later. Let me go quickly to the floor because people have been waiting. Muhammad Bashir Sab. Please, panelists, note the questions, etc. You'll have a chance to respond at the end. Mohammed Bashir Sahib. Thank you, Thank you uh, Nadeem. Always a great pleasure to be with you. And uh, you have a... Bashir Malik Sahib. Bashir Malik Sahib, let me also introduce you. Famous industrialist. Most 
important industries. Go ahead, Barak sir. Uh, I can tell you one from two perspectives, being one of the largest retailers in the country, and as well as one of the largest exporters for the last, I think, 30 years. So having really ground reality experience. And of course, all these talks are very, very educative and we understand this and we've been listening to all this for a long time, but the ground realities are totally different. One of them, of course, Hassan Malik raised about the electricity, but it was not that, there was no energy. Your factories were closed for three, three hours a day. Or something. On top of that, you had an anti, if you look at Pakistan's history, your exchange rate has been totally import biased for the last, you know, if you take the total years, 70 years, at least 70% of the time or 80%, your exchange rate has been anti-export totally. And so what do you do? You kept your exchange rate at 100 for five years. You lost your market share. You did the same thing when the quotas went. You lost your market share because when the quotas went, China went 10 times the market. Bangladesh took the market. Every country, Pakistan had an exchange rate, which they stuck to 60 rupees for five years. And they just didn't want to move it or 76 or seven, eight years. So, you know, when you do this to industry, so much of the replacement, the modernization, the balancing of the industry to keeping update goes away. So whenever you make these small tweaks and do it, you say, oh, we've given this subsidy. Now also, I saw the finance minister saying, we are showing how much subsidy we give to the export sector. It's not how much subsidy they give to the export sector. They are saying the how much subsidy they're giving to the domestic sector so they're blaming the export sector. The domestic people get the subsidy, not the domestic sector. The people, the poor people get the subsidy. The exports and the industry subsidizes it. Now, when they give it back and try to give it a level playing field, they say we are giving a subsidy. So the talk is totally, when they give you a refund, they say, oh, we've given you subsidies. But this is the taxes you paid. I mean, I've been owed 5 billion rupees now for five years. They're not giving. They said, oh, you're, it's too big. We are giving it to the small guys. So, you know, this is the language you hear in the FBR. They said, we want to give it to somebody who's got 50,000 and 100,000 and 200,000. We have to give them first. So how do you build scale? How do you compete in the international market? In the domestic market, you've got to first see what goods can be smuggled and what goods cannot be smuggled. That is the most important thing. There you can have custom duties because those goods can't be. But if your goods, which you, if you are in trading in goods, which are coming in Afghan transit, or under-invoiced or smuggled, the, you have to raise the duties to make it more difficult for the smugglers or things like that and try to make it more expensive for them. But of course, it's an incentive also. And with the conditions in the country, it's a very fine balance. How do you balance? It's a balancing act all the time. And it's a very, very difficult act to do it because the people have been at the FBR, they're so powerful and the Afghan lobby is so powerful and with the American lobby combined to give the Afghanis that excess of smuggled goods back into Pakistan, Pakistan has no say. They, have, they want peace to buy peace. Now you have a very tough neighbor, India, who's trying to finish your economy. You have Iran there who has his own interest and you have Afghanistan there. What do you do? You can't have a regional integration. You can't have regional benefits of trade. You can't do anything. So you're in a very, very special situation. So you've got to then see every product separately, how, what to do with it. And then you've got to see what has been happening in, over the years and how that industry has been affected, of course. And then what do you do? Your raw material has been wiped out. On cotton, you have a regulatory duty. 
and an import duty on your raw material. Now they've taken it out at this stage when they found out that there was nothing left in the country to buy and it was all damaged cotton. So, you know, these decisions are so impractical, so late that you have no chance to survive. How many people have been left? And when I started, uh, um, when I came back from England, I think 90% of the people have been wiped out who are in the industry. They're all new guys now coming. So you, you can find out the only 10% left of the original. Why? If the industry was so viable, why did everybody go into power sector, the other sectors, cement, sugar? Why? Because those were the ones which were the subsidized ones. Those are the ones who are getting the rental. Where things cannot be smuggled, where things cannot be, you know, there's a freight disadvantage or something. So you've got to separate all these things. You are talking generally. And when you talk generally, I think it's just not fair. I think you need to really work out on a systematic basis. So I, I would request all of you to really do your homework properly on each segment and then <laughs> consult the trade and then make these strategies and policies. Thank you, sir. Fair point, Bashir Sir. this is why the Soviet Union collapsed because they were trying to do too many detailed sort of uh, intermediations, trying to plan the economy, trying to make every little sector work. And unfortunately, we have learned through the Soviet experience and many other experiences that it's just not possible. The government is not capable of mediating so many interests. That is why it is better to leave some things to the market because the market can solve it on its own. And yes, it's painful, it's painful, no doubt, but the government can't solve all problems. If it does, it leads to a collapse. But nevertheless, I'll go on to Mr. Javed Hassan. Javed Hassan Saab. Ji, Salaam Alaikum. Ji, Alaikum Salaam. Javed Hassan Saab, Chairman of NAFTEC. Ji. Acha. I have two questions. One uh, relates to Gonzalo, mm -hmm. uh, because one of the things I've been looking at uh, separately is the complexity of the economy, which is something which uh, I think you're all aware of, Hidalgo and Hausman have been working on. And it is, depends on, there's a Harvard uh, lab which looks at how complex an economy is, how sophisticated it is. And there we are looking at the basic capabilities within an economy. And they look at exports. And for that, we need to have a greater diversity of exports. And, and it's something which I think one of the speakers uh, touched upon. But to have a greater diversity, we need to really actually see a product base, which is much more, and we need to see much more intermediary products, uh, price, uh, the tariffs being reduced. By having tariffs in all sorts of intermediary and some of the end products as well, we are effectively preventing the diversity of our export base and effectively also reducing our capabilities. And once we are reducing our capabilities, there's a strong correlation between capabilities and the sophistication of the economy and your long-term growth. Now I come back to the question that was addressed, uh, that we need to provide jobs. Now, at what cost do we need to provide jobs? I ask. Now, is it the role of the government to make sure that even the most internationally un uncompetitive industries, they should carry on so that because they are providing jobs? I can name a few industries in these countries which are getting as much as 50-60% tariff protection and because they are pr supposedly providing jobs. Now, mm -hmm. if they are actually getting 50-60% protection to provide jobs, someone must be earning that money the wealth is coming. So there's some wealth transference taking place. 
so I, I wouldn't want to know how many people are getting these jobs to actually take money from a lot more people. So it's a transference of wealth from the many to the few in creating these jobs. And we really need to think about it. Uh, are these jobs not going to happen if there's wealth in the society anyway? And this is the argument often used for cascading tariffs. So there are two questions. Do we really, as a policy objectives, do we protect jobs willy-nilly? Uh, or do we want to really have a policy objective that focus much more on the intrinsic innate capabilities within the economy so that long-term growth prospects are better, so that we have uh, efficiency-seeking efficiency investments coming into the country rather than the protective uh, market that most of these uh, investors are coming into. Much of the FDI that I've seen has not really come to re-export or to, to, to actually see it as efficiency. They're really basically, I can name a few big names, I won't do that, but they're basically looking at the domestic market because it's protected. So, the, the, I, so basically two questions, do we need greater complexity and sophistication? And do, are the, is our policy objectives protect jobs at any cost uh, a valid one? Good, very good Javed. Javed for another, another um, example of complexity being used for Pakistan, read my book. It's a different version of complexity. I think complexity is very important. It has not come to Pakistan yet. Just like uh, many other recent developments have come to Pakistan, complexity will take another 30 years to come to Pakistan. <laughs> uh, we'll wait, we'll wait, doesn't matter. Whether you and I are around or not, doesn't matter, but people here don't know complexity. I taught two courses on this in Lums, but uh, that's it. Okay, now we go to Muhammad Shahid Wahid. Shahid Saab, are you speaking? I guess not. Then let's go to Noor Mahal. Noor Mahal, unmute yourself. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Oh. I was using my oh. daughter's account, Mozam Ali Tour here, life yes. member Pied. Uh, thank you very much for providing me the opportunity. ਪੰਜਾਬੀ so the problem is that whoever is the uh, player is it the government is the ministry or the test departments is the private sector if you measure them in terms of quality productivity honesty excellence all of the players are below average that is a very honest. i'm I myself from the private sector but the honest and the fact, fact of the matter is that as a village, none of us is willing to perspire. Mm -hmm. Either it's a bureaucracy, civil or military, or a private sector. Everyone wants to make money in the minimum possible time without waiting or without giving any chance to the one who is performing better than them. Number one. 
I mean, if we gave even this uh, monopoly commission to Ministry of Commerce, what magical things they are going to do? If you write to them 40 letters, in 19, uh, 2013, I wrote a letter on the China trade, Park China trade, to include the meat. It just took seven years just to include, and still they have non-tariff barrier. Any policy we make for the country, we have negative impact, and the other people get the benefit. Park, Sri Lanka, free trade. Before that, we were 80, 90% positive. After the free trade, we were negative. So, for example, we have export promotion officer in all the embassies. In last 25 years, wherever I physically went or wrote them for help, we never received any help. So, whether it's the Ministry of Commerce or FBR or it's the Ministry of Finance, we have to understand the existing non-accountable, non-professional structure has totally collapsed. It's actually not working. On the opposite, uh, the business sector, the private sector, mostly doing uh, dishonest practices. jitna subsidy game hai, is under 30 to 40 percent artificial raising with the price key. That's the true. Hamare saath hi karte hai. But this is a matter of the fact. Lekin ye hai ki, until we as a collective, as a nation, we don't pledge to change or improve, uh, we will uh, uh, keep on going behind. We want to cut the branch while sitting on the same side. Okay. So we are going to fall. Okay. So Allah has la tabdila lisunnatil. Allah apni sunnat tabdil nahi karta. He doesn't change his way if we will not change. Good point. The, the worst example is Bangladesh. You know, we we use we got rid of them that they are very backward and they cannot keep up with the West Pakistan. Tursab, yes, we, have and, to, we have to now go to another question. Uh, right, sir. You made a very good point. Sir, sir, thank you very much, sir. Shafat Khan. Nahiya, per Mahmoud Khalid. Kya aur? Inka mic nahi chal raha. Mahmoud Khalid, are you there? Okay. Shahid Wahid Saab, batayiye agar ab ab aa sakte hain. Sir, sir. Sir, my question is about the trade openness. That uh, why our agriculture good uh, are mm -hmm. pain. Um, that why our agriculture trade is not open with our neighbors from which we get more benefits. Why there is a ban on open trade with Iran and Afghanistan, where our farmers can get more benefits and by which we increase our GDP and other economic indicators side by side. The problem of shortage should be resolved by the substitution of these agricultural goods or by importing dead goods on low cost from other countries like Australia and other European countries. So why there is a ban on agriculture goods and there are subsidies to the industrial other industrial goods. If we are agriculture country, then why there is a pain with our neighbor countries like Afghanistan where we, we can get uh, more benefits up to, to for 
سنگاپور But I believe the, in Pakistani context, the problem lies somewhere else. The problem lies in our revenue collections. When we, once we break down our revenue collection, mm-hmm. you would see that 50% of our re- revenue tariff is collected from Karachi port alone, number one. Number two, they, they, as one, uh, the gentleman who spoke uh, before me mentioned very rightly, we are an agriculture country, but once we look at our agriculture products exports, we'll find that live animals export is banned. We'll find that our sugar and even the basic commodity like wheat are very much regulated so all in all i find that the overall policy paradigm of pakistan is very much status quo oriented the policy makers they really don't like to tinker with it that's why we are exports were maybe i'll say at the same level 10 years back and they are at the same level now but i find in pakistani context that the once we come from the investment perspective the people who have established themselves into some industries they have created so many barriers by using the existing policies for the other players that these are the same same kind of people it keeps going on and on like once i like to mention that recently pakistan and china they signed an fta and in fta aluminum and copper ingots were uh, included in that part of fta but today i Uh, the day before yesterday there was a meeting of pakistan there was a, a meeting of pakistan fan manufacturers association in which they said that there should be rd on exports of copper and aluminum today i saw one of the advertisement by, from the pakistan automotive association uh, this vehicle manufacturers association that aluminum and copper exports should be placed under regulatory regime so in, in all in all i believe that it has become somewhat a culture of protection a culture of in which the status quo and i must not be saying rent seeking but somewhat a culture of status quo which is perpetuating in pakistan continuously and i like to mention here about investment only i'll just take a minute sir that in pakistan once we i find the biggest problem with investment is our regulatory regime like our visas pakistani visa is a big issue pakistanis don't offer nationalities to anyone else in pakistan foreigners cannot purchase lands in pakistan getting utility connections is almost impossible for the new industries we have recently imposed a, a ban on new industrial gas connections as well and there there were the plethora of issues like environment related issues social compliance related issues and then most importantly we are a difficult con- countries to foreigners to live in as well considering our religious and social issues as well. these this is a very complex i'll say uh, issues or problems which pakistan is confronted with at the moment thank you sir correct shafat sahab complexity is the key you are absolutely right absolutely right shafat khan sahab uh... hi can you hear me yeah we can hear you
Yeah, sorry, I, I couldn't unmute myself before. I have uh, a question from Gonzalo. I was uh, I found his presentation. Yourself, introduce yourself as well, so everybody knows. I I am a recent uh, graduate, uh, PhD graduate, and I'll be joining the World Bank uh, next week, actually. So I'm an incoming economist there. Congratulations. Uh, thanks a lot. Uh, I found Gonzalo's presentation really really insightful. I think it was well structured, and it was a good mix of mechanism as well as data details that we need for this discussion. I have a question from Gonzalo, which is related to his mechanism about how high consumer goods tariffs actually impede uh, exports. Uh, so usually when we think of this mechanism, we think of exporting and domestic production as an independent decision, but I don't think anybody believes that. So I think your story fits well there, but what interdependence do you have in mind when you talk about firms uh, sacrificing exports for domestic market because of high con high consumer goods tariff. Is it the capacity constraints? Is it uh, financial frictions that is causing that? Or do you have anything else in mind? Or what could be at play when you look at Pakistan? Thanks a lot for Great. the opportunity. Last question, Mahmoud Khalid. Do you have a question, Mahmoud Khalid? Sir, thank you. Uh, actually, I couldn't unmute earlier as well. My Con context is uh, related with Dr. Safda Shail, as he have rightly pointed out, and you have also carried out the complexity of the issue. Can we think about uh, not just the tariff incentives, but the credit-related incentives, the energy pricing incentives, and maybe link them with kind of a KPIs? That can resolve the problem because efforts should be really uh, uh, like uh, encouraged, and those who are actually not performing well should be discouraged and they should be weeded out from the system so that more opportunities could be created for the better performers. Thank you. Thank you, Mahmoud Khalid Saab. Okay, folks, I'll come back to the panel. As you, as you have seen, the issue is very, very complex and complexity is the key. And, but as I said, we don't understand complexity and we will take a long time for us to understand that. The framework economic growth that I prepared in the Planning Commission 2011 was also based on complexity. But at that time, it was premature. We didn't even know anything about complexity. The key issue here is that there's just too many complex interlinkages. That is why I backed off into getting a civil service reform and governance reform done. We have to have a government that is capable of doing this. But the World Bank chose to make a competition commission, Gonzalo. The World Bank chose to make these regulatory agents, which has further fragmented government. Now, OGRA is being dismantled. So I don't know where we are going. Our governance is perpetually being dismantled, with Fasisab going after DEI. Um, do we have a governance system that's going to be able to do it? But over to you, Gonzalo, if you can take all, on all these questions. There's a question of perspiration, question of employment, question of the exchange rate. Exchange rate mishandled, then we composite the tariff. Taxes mishandled, then we composite the tariff. Tariff mishandled, then we composite the subsidy. Subsidy mishandled, then we compensated the refunds. Refunds mishandled, then we compensated this. How long can this continue? I mean, where will World Bank come in and patch fix? You guys are patch fixing all the time. You have no comprehensive approach, or do you? Go ahead, Nidal. Okay, so I, I will start by saying that this this needs to be sorted out by the government of Pakistan and by Pakistan's people, right? Uh, so that's, that's the first uh, thing I want to say. This is, a, this is not the World Bank's role uh, or, or any other international institution. This is a 
these are decisions that the Pakistani people need to make, and they elect, uh, you know, they they, they elect uh, politicians that are in place and appoint government officials. Uh, but but apart from from that, uh, I wanted to touch upon what Esan Malik and uh, Mr. Bashir mentioned because, you know, I I wanted to to start with it, but then I didn't. That is. I, I, I couldn't agree more with the fact that Pakistan needs jobs. And I, 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 I am not a, so I'm not a market fundamentalist in the sense of saying, oh, what we need to do is we need to reduce tariffs to zero, eliminate all sorts of support mechanisms. My point is that the way in which firms get support in Pakistan is not delivering on the objective. That, that is my main point. And in particular, is that tariffs as a way of protecting uh, is quite an inefficient way of protecting that hasn't delivered in Pakistan. And here, I couldn't agree more with Mr. Bashir's point uh, on, on exchange rates and the role that they have had, not only on exports, but also on, 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 on the, the strength of the industrial sector in general, right? So what has happened for much of the 2010 uh, 2010-2020 decade, so that second decade of the, of, the, of the 21st century, is that you have a, a basic policy inconsistency with an overvalued exchange rate, and, it, and then at the same time, high tariffs with marked cascading, which meant that you were making it very difficult for exporters to export because of the overvalued exchange rate, and you were making it easy for importers to import because the exchange rate was overvalued. And at the same time, you had relatively low tariffs on intermediates and raw materials higher on final goods. And so you had all these firms that were imported input, were imported, importing inputs and were selling domestically. And so your current account, uh, your current account balance collapsed and you had a, a, a deficit for a long time that basically led to accumulation of net foreign liabilities for Pakistan, that means you know, more like like a higher likelihood of having current account imbalances in the future. So uh, I, I do agree with the, the exchange rate problem having been a huge problem for the industrial sector and for exporters. Now, what I would like to do, I, I would like to actually to hear more from, from, you know, people that are in the private sector, uh, but also from policymakers and academia, is can we, can we sit down and, and think of a different way of supporting the private sector that is more effective? So what is the challenge? Is the challenge a capability? So we need to invest in capabilities. Is the challenge a, you know, expert like information about foreign markets? Is the challenge certification and standard compliance? So if we identify what the challenge is, then we can perhaps say, okay, we, we need to support the private sector because we need jobs and because there may be some gains associated with more sophisticated uh, manufacturing as Javed was mentioning, et cetera, et cetera, that perhaps warrants some sort of support. But let's try to identify a way of supporting that is, first of all, that has sunset clauses. Second, that has conditionalities in terms of performance, as Esan Malik was mentioning. Uh, and third, that, that levels the playing field so that we give the same, you know, sort 
talk the same to everyone and we don't discriminate against those that are new. And uh, you know, uh, one thing that the State Bank Pakistan did that I thought it was a very good decision recently is open up the LTFF and the EFS to more sectors than before. So before this, this export finance schemes that are subsidized, uh, we're, we're focusing only on uh, specific sectors. So open that up, allow ICT exporters also to avail to that type of, and so open it up, leveling the playing field, introducing sunset clauses and introducing performance conditions. I think it's a way of supporting the private sector that is much more effective than having uh, tariffs that, that create a lot of distortions that allocate resources inefficiently and that haven't worked anyway. So it, it's not that they have worked to support industrialization. So I think that's, that's my point. And I think that's where I, I think we need a little bit more of, more of debate. Um, and then I will just mention uh, briefly on, on uh, uh, Shafat's question. It's a difficult question, but but the way I'm thinking about it is, if you're if you're if you have, if you're a firm that has two options to sell domestic to sell domestically or, or export, right? And and the, the the tariff structure gives incentives and tilts your relative prices away from exporting and into selling domestically. The likelihood that you will make the investments needed. To have the infrastructure required to be able to export because exporting is a difficult thing. You, it's not these firms, uh, when, when you decide to, to, to produce, you need to choose two ways. It's, it's perhaps in, in more sophisticated countries, uh, you can, you're, you're going to be able to, to, to sell domestically or sell the same product abroad. But in a country like Pakistan, where there is a gap between the, the quality required in the domestic market and the quality required abroad, you need to invest in capacity that is different for exporting and for not exporting. And if the current tariff structure incentivizes your selling domestically, you're not going to invest in capacity to produce exportable. So there you have the type of investment required to produce exportables is not incentivized by the current tariff structure. So I'll, I'll stop here. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Gonzalo. Uh, yes, it's a mess, it's a mess. So Asansa, please. Why don't you come in and pick up some of the questions and uh, tell us? Yeah. The, is employment the only, is manufacturing the only way to get employment? Because quite frankly, manufacturing is only about 18% of the job market, I think. Service yeah, I, no, so, so it, isn't, it isn't the only. Uh, obviously, agriculture is, is a huge uh, potential. Um, and it also would benefit the rural economy and, and so on. Uh, but just, just, just to, uh, you know, clarify, Jobs at any cost is not an objective for, for anyone. But but I I, I, I mean I, I want you to to look at uh, the way uh, if you divide Pakistan's total population of 210 million into five, so you have five quintiles. Yeah, you disregard the bottom quintile and you say, well, you know, they don't have any money uh, to buy anything uh, and they're you know hand to mouth etc. And you take the the top quintile out. Because you say they've got so much money that they couldn't care less where the products are made and they will buy, always buy imported products. You still have 130 million people in the in the middle, you know, in, in, in the in the middle three quadrants. Now 130 million is a lot of population. So you should therefore, all other things being equal, be able to generate enough scale to be competitive. But what has happened? 
If you take, we start from 2007 and you come to, you know, last year, because we don't have this year's figures, yeah. Footwear, total imports up threefold. Pumps, fourfold. Glassware, sixfold. Tiles, threefold. Blankets, threefold. Fans, threefold. Now I put to you, are these very sophisticated products that we should, we, are, we should not be making locally? For a 130 million population, which is in the, in the middle quantile, surely we should be making them. Yeah? But why have we stopped making them? Because of all the other impediments that have come in the way. If you don't have energy, you can't produce, so forget the cost of energy. Then you have the energy, but, but, but your cost is about 25% or 30% higher than the, and the, than the global norms. Yeah? You don't have the scale. Uh, you haven't given enough industry enough time to build that scale. So you need to be able to provide that. But moving on, I mean, I think from, from an overall perspective, obviously tariffs is not the only tool. You have to take a holistic approach, uh, an approach that, that deals with all the silo uh, manner in which all the ministries work and all the policy uh, uh, you know, uh, framers work. Uh, also, I want to uh, clarify, you know, this notion of subsidy um, needs to be understood. What is a subsidy? Subsidy is not the difference between an uncompetitive cost, which is what Pakistan's energy cost is, and what is being given to the exporters to become competitive globally. That is not a subsidy. You are actually providing the exporters the means to compete globally by, by giving them a, a cost which is comparative to the cost in Bangladesh or the cost in, 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 in India. Yeah? Everybody turns around and say, oh, this is a huge subsidy. It's not a subsidy at all. If you were to offer the same to the industry, industry local industry, uh, and then you call it a subsidy, that's not a subsidy. I mean, the, the covering the cost of theft of electricity, covering the cost of inefficient transmission, uh, uh, you know, is, is not a subsidy. Covering the cost of government departments and institutions not paying for the electricity they use and, 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 and putting the burden of that on industry is surely not a subsidy. Yeah? So, so I think we need to, to get the, those right. Look, neoclassical economics is I don't think what Gonzalo is, 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 is advocating and Washington consensus is not what we are advocating. But you know, just run through what, what was Washington consensus all about. It was about low borrowing cost, uh, I mean, sorry, low government borrowing. But what happens in Pakistan? The government crowds out the private sector from credit. It was about tax reforms. It was about broadening the tax base, having moderate marginal tax rates. Surely that, does, that doesn't exist in Pakistan. It was having competitive exchange rates. Well, we now have competitive exchange rates, but for about four or five years, we had static exchange rates, uncompetitive exchange rates. It talks about privatization of state-owned enterprises. Which, uh, which, which private sector, which, which uh, state-owned enterprise has been privatized of any, any, any standing? It talks about deregulation. What have we got in Pakistan? We've got a bloated bureaucracy. We've got a colonial era set of regulations that were designed to control the natives. Uh, it was not about empowering industry. It was not about empowering job creation. It was about controlling. It was about taxing. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and, and incidentally, who are they trying to control? They are trying to control half the business which is in the formal sector. The rest is, by the way, in the informal sector that the civil servants can't even reach. 
it was it was washington consensus was also about creating legal security which is speed and quality of dis, uh, of of judgments it was also about protection of intellectual property do those things uh, happen in pakistan they surely don't so obviously tariffs is 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 only one way to do it but you got to fix all this and then say uh, you know uh, should 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 are uh, we moving in the right direction or not if you don't we will continue to deindustrialize and yes surely manufacturing is not the only way to create jobs we should be creating jobs in in the it sectors in the back offices in the call centers etc but we haven't got the policies right for that but you know this is the i mean we, we, i don't want to go into that uh, aspect so i'll just stop there thank you sir thank you very good i think you made a very good point that because there's so much messed up everywhere we should compensate in other direction so when energy is messed messed up we compensate in subsidy when tariffs are messed up we compensate here uh, it's just a mess that's where complexity comes in and that's where we really need to think about it javed sir you have another point go ahead javed hasan javed do you want to make another point or no okay no let me then go to uh, fasee sir But see, sir, uh, there's a huge charge of the government here. I want a very simple question from you. Hello. I was. I, I'm, I'm here. I, I okay. can. I can. Go, make go ahead. Go ahead, Javed. Sir, quick comment. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, I think. Uh, I think you're absolutely right, Asan Sab. There are many complex issues, but let's take it for a given that electricity costs in Pakistan are higher. and and that's just as it is now it's not fair it's not good but that's how it is we have to assume these are basically intrinsic components of our economy now like it or not and for that let's assume that for a second that we shouldn't be subsidized because there are many other intrinsic things which are very bad there's one beneficiary or another uh, uh, loser so let's let's walk away from that for a second but i take a very simple thing and i'm not going to name any uh, uh, particular brand but if i am buying a car which is uh, for 40 lakhs because of the tariffs and various processes in it which ordinarily should cost 20 lakhs now i'll assume that the person who is buying that car is not necessarily working in another protected industry he obviously is creating the wealth for 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 buying that 40 lakhs now that extra 20 lakhs that he's actually paying in uh, tariffs he could have used that capital in creating some jobs or consumption so my point is that there is obviously there's an assumption here that if we don't give protective tariffs for the value added sector jobs will somehow disappear and there will be nothing happening now if there is wealth actually in the system then there must be other alternative jobs that will emerge if we remove or even these existing companies might actually actually get more efficient i think there is a fair element and quite right you should be fearful because yes if there's a sort of uncoordinated reduction in tariffs you can have the cases as you have seen in some of the developed markets but we have to really be cognizant that there is transference of wealth here and we need that also should be a policy objective that we should be questioning i can give you another steel industry for basic raw bar material we are paying something like 30% more than any other country so what can go into the specifics and this is something which i think uh, a body like pbc pr- probably needs to address uh, so 
what are we protecting and are we actually creating value? Are we really actually protecting jobs even? Because you are actually taking wealth away. Sorry, okay. this is my... Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Sansar, do you want to say something? Or... No, so, so, so my counter question would be, who's taking this wealth away? Is, is it the government of Pakistan no, through, being... through, through higher, through so higher those tariffs? Who are, those who are being protected? Those, those... Really? No, you're absolutely right. The state itself is an extractor here. Yeah. The state is obviously extracting. Okay, let him answer. Go ahead, Sansar. No, so so okay, so so high high ta high tariffs or high taxes uh, take away the wealth from um, you know the private sector, for want of a better term, into 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 the public sector, right? Um, now, if the if the public sector was to utilize that in an efficient manner, fix the electricity issues, fix all the other things, then at least we would be on a win-win uh, uh, basis. The problem is that all this uh, extraction uh, that happens uh, in the form of you know taxes or tariffs or whatever is is not being utilized in a proper manner i mean pakistan does not rank anywhere even in south asia in terms of socio economic development within that if you look at human capital development that is sadly lacking you know every index will show pakistan at at the bottom right if you have a human capital which is underdeveloped how do you expect them to have the skills have the productivity levels to be able to compete in the international market but forget the international market even compete with imports coming into the country so i go back to what i was saying it there has to be a holistic approach you can't just pick up on one aspect or the other aspect you have to you know somebody uh, has to bring everything together uh, align all the ministries align all the policies it's a major task it's not going to happen overnight it's not going to just be tbc or x or y or z that has to do it our job obviously is to highlight these issues we've just recently issued a charter of economy i don't know whether you had a opportunity to look at it please do um, it is pointing into into various pillars of the economy which are sadly lacking which need to be addressed so i'll just stop at that because otherwise we get into a micro discussion this reminds me I saw your charter of the economy and I meant to ask you, but let me ask you here. Let's do a webinar on that. Let's bring it out in the public. The AD will host it. Let's do that because I think it's an important thing to do too. Uh, I, I think this is very, a very good question that Hassan Sab raised, that we have to have a holistic approach, which is what Javed was also saying. And uh, as Safta said earlier, we need to align our ministries. Now, obviously, that's the job of the Ministry of Commerce. So I've got two individuals from the Ministry of Commerce, one current, one Secretary. So, folks, who wants to go first? Fasisab, why do you tell us why? What role is the Commerce Ministry playing in all this? I was in the Commerce Ministry in 2005, and even then, I pointed out that the Commerce Ministry needs to play a more central role in commerce. To date, Commerce Ministry is not playing a central role in commerce. Why is that? I go to your website, I see nothing there. You give no, no real analysis. Why is this subject not analyzed by you? I have proposed for the last 15 years that we will prepare a state of commerce report for you. Even today, we are proposing it. But you guys I don't have any reports at all. What is this ministry that gives us no reports, no analysis? We have to rely on the World Bank and we have to rely on others to give us an analysis. Is the ministry's job not to give us an analysis? Pasi, sir. Uh, I... Uh... 
I can't speak on ministry's behalf right now. I am not representing it uh, today. Uh, however, I can try to explain uh, things as 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 they are. So, uh, so the thing is that it's a sad state of affair that, uh, unfortunately, trade or international trade does not figure very predominantly in our national policy mix. We tend to see uh, that things like development and our international relations with a very different uh, lens uh, and that lens unfortunately uh, does not include uh, questions of uh, long-term trade and economic security or uh, or other aspects of it uh, so uh, maybe we are in permanent stage of crisis where we are looking for short-term fixes most of the time Having said that, I agree with you that Ministry of Commerce needs to play a more proactive role in bringing people together. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, it's it's not a preeminent ministry among the ministries. Uh, you understand it better that, that that preeminence belongs to somebody else and lies somewhere else. Uh, uh, however, uh, there is a need to reform uh, all the all these structures over there. You need to enable Ministry of Commerce to build its capacities to do kind of analysis that you're referring to. Uh, and and yes, Ministry of Commerce and Government of Pakistan has to put its house in order in order to facilitate these reforms that we're talking about. I tend to agree with these recommendations, which are asking for enhanced public policy consultations uh, between the government and the private sectors when they're making policies, be it tariff policy or, or any other policy that, that they make and and, and there can't be any two views about it. I just have a small comment to make with regard to smuggling. Somebody raised this issue of smuggling. I, I tend to see that, uh, you know, it's actually high tariffs are a very strong incentive for illegal uh, trade and smuggling. And in fact, this is the primary reason why things are getting smuggled into uh, this country and by maintaining high tariffs we can't really control that we have to improve enforcement of uh, government and the government departments we have to undertake reforms and uh, in pakistan customs and fbr and, uh, and 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 i think that's the way how it should be done and not by maintaining high high tariffs uh, uh, at all so uh, i tend to agree that there's a holistic approach uh, to things that is required that is needed Thank you, Fazisa. Fazisa, one, one more question. Uh, how many projects do you have of technical assistance at the Ministry of Commerce? I know there's one by the World Bank or IFC, and I know there's this uh, DI now. So how many projects do you have in the ministry to do your work? I, uh, there, there, there was a, there a couple of others uh, as well. Uh, I've seen that DFID is, is also, uh, ICT is also probably starting a project with, with Ministry of Commerce and uh, World Bank and, and us are doing that. Uh, and our role is basically to help ministry arrive wherever it wants us to make intervention at an informed decision, bring can you give us how many all million, the stakeholders how many million together. dollars are involved in this? How many million dollars is DI right. getting through this? Uh, you see, our project, which which is now its its uh, fag end, uh, had about fifteen million dollars. It started in two thousand fifteen, and it had two components. One dealt with FBR, and and it's 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 advocating reforms 
uh, NFBR for improving trade facilitation uh, and the other. And then the World Bank project is $120 million, I'm told. Okay. That right, Gonzalo? Gonzalo? Gonzalo's gone? Yeah, but what is the, the project of World Bank with? Yeah. Sorry? Some, some project that they're doing with the Ministry of Finance, either IFC or you, $120 million through DFID or something on making Pakistan more competitive or something like that. So what we do have is a technical assistance that is uh, financed uh, by DFID, by mm -hmm. FCDO actually now. Okay. Uh, that's that's a, for the, the trade component is less than $300,000. No, total project. What is the size of the total project? The total project, it, it, it's, not only, it's not only commerce, but it's also tax, revenue mobilization. It's also finance, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't have the numbers, but it's certainly okay. way below 120 million. It's uh, way below 100. Okay. Okay. Way, way, but way below, like perhaps probably less than 10 million in total over five years. Great, wonderful. So, so what is the Ministry of Commerce budget? I mean, their administrative budgets. I mean, the DI has 15, 10 million dollars here, 25 million dollars. And what is the Ministry of Commerce's total budget? So let's get a, an idea of where we are in this in this business, who is running the government? Safta Sab, unmute. Well, I, I'll hesitate to give a direct answer. Uh, I'll, I'll give an indirect answer again with the help of the framework that I'm suggesting to use that um, uh, Donors are one of the major strategic action fields in Pakistan. And uh, uh, there was a time when uh, the Ministry of Commerce uh, uh, was less dependent on the donors. <clears throat> we, we established Pakistan Institute of Trade and Development precisely for this uh, job of technical backstopping. And uh, uh, I, I, can, I can say with, uh, uh, with confidence that we uh, considered Ministry of Commerce much more neutral as compared to the other ministries uh, uh, when it came to the questions of protections. You have spoken about the cars and uh, the, the way policies would be reversed and the forum hopping, which would uh, uh, decision making forums, which would take uh, place. Uh, ministry of Commerce is a small ministry as such. Uh, you know, the Trade Development Authority is a bigger animal. A ministry has hardly 350 uh, people. Uh, if you look at the senior level, uh, more than half of the people are busy in the FTAs and uh, then some looking after the export development aspects. Uh, but now I would say that uh, uh, this uh, acceleration of the distortions in the state market relationship. Now that uh, has brought us to one such situation that uh, a kind of consensus that Hassan Malik Saab is talking about uh, who is going to deliver that? Is any one ministry, can any one ministry be expected to deliver that? For me, it has to be Ministry of Commerce, but we, we know the, uh, the governance weaknesses we expected. I personally expected that the reform process, governance reform process being led by Dr. Ishrat would give due focus in, in my view uh, international trade and domestic commerce should be separately handled as a subsystem 
and then we all know the problems uh, and uh, anti export bias is okay fine but i think if uh, if we think that this is the central pillar of pakistan's export development strategy uh, for the next five years okay fine uh, now we have the national tariff policy board let's see how do they do uh, we, we can and should try to strengthen them should make them realize that the, the the matters of equity in state market relationships are extremely important uh, uh, somebody commented that even in domestic commerce we have very very serious market uh, distortions now who is going to attend to those uh, distortions uh, we understand uh, uh, we, we all know the histories of um, uh, these isolated attempts to reduce let's say the protection levels of the auto sector and we all know how things happen so my main concern today has been to draw the attention of the audience to the how part that why we are we have been unable to change the status quo in terms of state market relationship which is becoming actually worse so there the answer is in governance reforms the answer is on uh, creating trust you, you know what happens in the auto sector whenever you start uh, thinking of reforming it they become too sensitive that government would uh, uh, move the pendulum to the other side uh, so the trust is not there uh, we uh, we need to realize the ground reality uh, many people have talked about the smuggling what is the unchecked smuggling done to pakistan it has seeped into the distribution channels up to the uh, retail and wholesale outlets now that is a strategic action field to uh, deal with they would they they would not like this to change so we have to do a good dispassionate analysis of all the actors and networks and the relationship which play in the background uh, in taking all these decisions and then uh, for me personally if we can identify the worst casualties of consumer welfare in pakistan identify those sectors which we are allowing to happen just due to our inability to understand how the decision making system works and take out the worst uh, worst casualties or miscarriage of equity in the system i think there academia has a big role to play to make things really contested i uh, i would not like to comment on the role of the donors here they somehow have uh, given scant attention to competition issues in terms of fdi in terms of uh, uh, this is a separate topic i, I wish we we okay, could speak up, more thank on you. that thank, thank you dr sab thank you gonzalo thank you everybody thank you world bank for helping us arrange this webinar i think it's been a great debate we should have more of these we are going to take up asan um, uh, malik's um, um, um <clears throat> pbc um <clears throat> forward looking vision we'll do that inshallah next <clears throat> but uh, let me just say that you know unfortunately when you look at the economy i learned i've done my past was always looking at um partial equilibrium analyses but when i came to pakistan i realized it just won't work that complexity is the key issue and we have to talk about how things are interconnected unfortunately as hasan malik said bashir ali mohammed said that look for god's sake we've got um 
you know, energy costs on the one side, documentation costs on the other side, taxation on this side, etc. So there's far too many issues. And that is why nobody's neoclassical here, nobody's free market here. But the key issue is that we've discovered that governments can be too clever by half. And the governments tend to think that they can affect each little sector down to the six digit level, each industry separately, it creates a mess. And that's what the Soviet Union tried, so it shouldn't happen. Secondly, if the government is uh, the government wants to tax while also losing money at the PSC level, government loses more money at the PSC level than it collects taxes. So, I mean, that's also very strange. How can we keep collect, collect taxes to and a game that we keep losing? But in tariffs, let me tell you, Gonzalo, a very interesting story that very few people know, and you probably yourself don't know. My favorite place in Lahore is burnt down, Hafiz Center. Hafiz Center, last time I went there, I went there to buy a, a computer. It used to have lovely smuggled goods. As I told you, I'm a great fan of smuggled goods because, hey, that's my welfare. So Hafiz Center used to have lovely cell phones and lovely computers. In fact, I remember in Singapore trying to buy a cell phone and the guy told me, are you from Pakistan? I said, yes. He said, no, buy it Hafiz Center. That's a much better place to buy it. I said, fine. We used to get lovely computers. Now they've finally cracked down on cell phones and computers. So now there are huge tariff barriers. So every phone now costs a huge amount. So last time I went to Hafiz Center to buy a computer, guess what? They're importing consumers in garbage consignments or these secondhand, what they call Lunda consignments. They're importing used computers, 10 year old in consignments and selling them. So every kid now has to buy a used computer, right? Which is Xeon or whatever, old chips and old computers, they dust them up and it's okay, now you can have this for 20,000, 30,000, 50,000, something like that. They sell you those computers. I don't know whether we're gonna gain from this or not when our kids who are supposed to be competing in the IT market are using cheap computers. At the same time, our internet is down. At the same time, our cell phones, now everybody being forced to buy a cheap Pakistani cell phones, Apple is out of the reach of everybody. Even good Samsung is out of the reach of everybody. So I don't know how this will affect the IT industry. This is the point of complexity. You affect something here, something else gets affected. So. It, it is not that I'm for free market, but I'm just, I just begin to understand the complexity of the system. And I say, hey, there's no grand computer. I remember when I went to Czechoslovakia for the reform, I asked them about prices and the, they said, tomorrow we'll have a meeting. Next day I went there, they were cutting in a bunch. They had a huge truckload of computer paper there. Here's the economy, let's discuss it. I said, shit, <laughs> you got a whole computer printout. I mean, truckload of computer printout. How the hell do you keep track of it? They said, oh, well, we watch everything. So you can't do it that way. So that's a problem. The second thing is, uh, Gonzalo, I mean, you know, everybody talks about consultation. It's the private sector and the government. And yes, the private sector, Bashir Saab and uh, San Malik, they sit with the government often. Academia has no role in this. Now you mentioned 15 million and $10 million. Guess what the budget of PID is? $1 million, right? And uh, the private sector will not even talk to us, right? Because quite frankly, the, there's no relationship between industry and the private sector. This relationship somehow cannot be created unless they feel the need. There's no relationship between us and the government too, because neither of them feel the need to consult the local academia because technical assistance is there. I think there's a huge crowding out. We talk about crowding out of investment. Nobody talks about crowding of out of intellect. And I think that's also important to think about. If you think the reform is going to be created by ideas, which I think, which I've written in my book too, then we have to have let the domestic idea industry happen. If you don't let the domestic idea industry happen, then reform is kind of 
kind of half winged because there are no ideas that are floating around domestically. World Bank comes in and says something or DFID comes in and says something. People don't really pay attention because you know there's no, no reform happening. Besides, who takes responsibility for that advice? For example, when the IPP happened, who was responsible? Were we responsible? For example, when the, um, you know, the fund program came in, I was there when the regulatory duties were put in. I sat there and I argued, hey, regulatory duties are ridiculous. Why are we doing that? Who is responsible there? And when Michael Barber came in, did the education reform and nothing happened, who is responsible? So these are all issues that we should also worry about. I'm not trying to you know, uh, make a point any fingers, but these are important fingers to point because where is our domestic debate? How do we get our policy making going? Anyway, that's for another time. Thank you very much, folks. This has been a wonderful session. Enjoyed it enormously. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you all.